I'm struck at the story of Job in the Bible. Job loses everything. Uh, he gets pretty mad about it. And he writes a speech that he wants to give to God. And he finally has the chance to come before God. And when he does get before God, he doesn't get his speech out. In fact, God has a speech for him. And the whole story of Job 38 is God asking Job a bunch of questions. Were you there when I created the foundations? Were you there when I, you know, created the Leviathan? Were you there when da 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 da? Uh, the story of Job is not an explanation for suffering. It does not deal with theodicy. If it does deal with theodicy, it does not have the answers that we're looking for. It is not an adequate explanation of suffering. And that is because that's not the point of the book of Job. The point of the book of Job is not that God gives people answers. The point of the book of Job is that God gives people his presence. And we tend towards in the Western church, when people are going through struggles, usually they're looking for our presence and we end up giving them answers. When in reality, what our kid is looking for is they're not really looking for an answer. They're looking for somebody to be with them in the question. Dr. A.J. Swoboda, it is a pleasure to have you on Faith in the Folds. Thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, uh, Kevin, the honor is all mine. It's a joy to be with you. I was uh, first introduced to you through a um, through a, a, an acquaintance of mine, a friend of yours, Dr. Nijay Gupta, who's a friend of the podcast. I mentioned before the recording that he did an episode for us on Philippians back then. And I told you that you had him to blame for uh, ultimately <laughs> bringing this meeting together tonight. Yeah, many, many parts of my life are blamed on Nijay, but this in particular, <laughs> uh, at this moment in life is, is the, is the real damnable offense. Uh, if but, I run into him at, uh, like the IBR reception or something here in Denver in a couple of months, I'll, I'll be sure to pass that along. Yeah, you really, you really lay into him, uh, when you're with him, Kevin, I think that's appropriate. <laughs> I'll be, I'll be happy just to get a selfie with him or something like that. Oh, there you <laughs> I go. I might tag you in it. Um, <clears throat> before we dig into our topic tonight, let me ask, can you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where are you teaching, how long you've been teaching, you know, interests and, and things like that? Help us get to know you a little bit before we dig yeah. into what we're going to get into. Yeah, so uh, I uh, uh, teach, uh, uh, teach Bible and theology at Bushnell University, formerly known as Northwest Christian University here in Eugene, Oregon. So I'm the associate uh, professor of Bible theology here, World of Christianity. Uh, at my university, which really largely entails a uh, a full you know full semester uh, or full um, uh, course load of you know teaching undergraduate students intro to the Bible courses and theology courses, which I absolutely love. And as well, I actually teach I run a doctor of ministry program at Fuller oh, cool. uh, Seminary around the Holy Spirit and leadership. Um, and my kind of background, uh, I, sort of where I I pulled my weight. Uh, as a, as a PhD student was I originally did my research and work on uh, environmental care, the Bible and uh, charismatic theology. So I actually wrote the very first charismatic theology of earthkeeping that's ever really been written. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's wow. like four people in the world that are interested in the topic. <laughs> I've, I've, got some, uh, I've got some friends from, uh, from my doctoral program 
who um, find themselves in, in various charismatic traditions, uh, some vineyard, some assemblies of God, I might, uh, I might send them your way at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it'd be great to have four more people in our small group uh, to be able to talk out the ideas, but my background, yeah. So I'm a systematic theology, theology guy. And um, Nijay and I, we, we do a podcast together called in faith and doubt. And we actually, our roots go back to Portland seminary where he was teaching. And I was uh, teaching as a, as an adjunct professor a number of years ago, he was full-time uh, when I lived in Portland. So Great, great to know that we have a common friendship. And Nijay, of course, is a great guy. And um, yeah, Kevin, excited to be with you today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Well, when we, I, I mentioned earlier that um, you have, we have Nijay Gupta to blame, ultimately for, uh, for this uh, meeting here. It was his recommendations on social media that led me to this book that I used on a uh, for a Wednesday night Bible study over several weeks back, beginning I think in January, and in this book titled "After Doubt: How to Question Your Faith Faith Without Losing It," you said you felt especially qualified to write this book, which is a great, which is a great line, by the way. Uh, of all I think things, to be proud uniquely, of. I'm uniquely qualified. Uniquely qualified. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fair. Um, how has your faith? been shaped by dealing with doubt and, and, and like what ultimately kind of led you to uh to to writing this yeah there's two um so, yeah, by the way uh just so your audience is clear i've never uttered those words about anything in my life as being utterly uniquely qualified for anything <laughs> anybody that knows me and knows how insecure i am would be shocked to hear me ever say I'm qualified for something because I did <laughs> I'm, I'm disqualified from everything, mm -hmm. um, which maybe maybe something I need to work through with my counselor. But um, yeah, there's kind of two sides to my answer in that to that question, which is why 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 are you uniquely qualified to write a book on doubt and deconstruction? And there's two sides to that story. I think the first is uh, my conversion story. I was not raised in the church and okay. was. Um, kind of a, I had a radical encounter with Jesus at the age of 16 and really brought into my faith a pretty, I don't know, you could maybe call it a critical mind. I have a brilliant dad. My dad's a doctor. My mom's a nurse kind of raised in a, a medical family, yeah. uh, you know, been, been raised with, I think a fairly decent brain. And I was raised to ask really good questions. And uh, when I became a Christian, uh, I naturally was drawn towards asking the hard questions. Yeah. And those questions uh, to me have been have been largely satisfied by the Christian story and the, the story of the Bible. Um, but that notwithstanding, just by temperament, um, I love to kick the tires on stuff and I, I love to to test stuff out um, so that there's that side to it. Um, but the, really, the, I think the, the part that uniquely qualifies me the most is is the trajectory of my vocation, which has been. Uh, for 10 years, I was a college-age pastor on a major campus, a research university here in Eugene. For 10 years, I was a, essentially, uh, for 10 years, was a church planter and a pastor in urban Portland, Oregon, where I uh, established with a, an incredible team of people, uh, with my wife, a church in the urban core called Theophilus. Um, and now, for the last four years, have served as an undergraduate professor full-time at the university where I'm at. And each one of those environments represents 
uh, a ministry to a certain group of people. I traditionally have found myself uh, ministering to between 18 and 35 year olds. And what I've just had the opportunity to do for the last 24 years and sit in the front row of of the church and watch what happens when young people ask really big questions and what happens and what, what leads to those questions and what helps them in those questions and what doesn't help them in those questions and how the church deals with questions and how the church deals with the people that are asking those questions. So in a lot of ways, I think my ministry context of just spending a lot of time with 18 to 35 year olds has really opened up the door for, um, door for conversation. And I like to, I, I often point out, you know, just both, you know, as Osama bin Laden, uh, the mastermind of the 9-11 attacks and Billy Graham both have one thing in common. Um, <laughs> and the, the, their commonality is both of them uh, both claimed that their first major religious experience that changed their life took place when they were freshmen in college. And Interesting. I, I like to say that because um, people that are going through that season of asking questions, what they find during that season has a really disproportionate impact on the rest of their life. Yeah. So I've just seen like being really present to people in that season really makes a big difference in their life. Yeah. May, may I ask why, why is it that age group, you said 18 to 35, why is it that that age group really does seem like they are asking a lot of questions and, and probing maybe what they grew up with. Yeah. I, you know, there, I think there's a lot of ways to answer that. Um, th there's been a lot written. There's a lot of academic literature that's been written on um, faith formation from even a psychological perspective. So for example, uh, Steve Fowler's work or a, 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 a stages of faith by Fowler, which is, um, you know, James Fowler's big academic volume on uh, how we how we develop our faith formation over the life of, of uh, you know, over our, our, our life. Um, uh, a Critical Journey by Gulick and a, a, another scholar on, on this very topic. Um, it does seem to me that in, in, in the same way that a marriage goes through seasons, in the same way that a child goes through seasons, in the same way that, you know, we've got puberty and you've got adolescence, you've got adulthood and childhood, that, we may be the same person across that period of time, but the kind of questions we're asking and our needs really are different. You know, the need for the, the needs of a middle-aged man at 42 are very different than the needs of a three-year-old girl. Um, they're just different needs. Then they yeah. ask different questions and they're thinking about different things. And, you know, e even in the storyline of the Bible, uh, Eugene Peterson years ago wrote about how when you look at the major epochs in the in the biblical story and even the first five books in the Bible Genesis Exodus Leviticus Numbers Deuteronomy that actually each one of those books represent part of the faith journey Genesis is our creation you know Exodus is a season of of enslavement um, Leviticus becomes when we experience the holiness of God he he sort of talks about like we go yeah. through in the same way that you have these five books you go through seasons in life so there's just Kevin, I think my answer, my very long answer to question uh, is that there is something that happens between 18 and I'm say 25, 30, where you are beginning to evaluate what from your childhood years you're going to bring with you into adulthood. Yeah. You know, I've, I've noticed old people tend to get more conservative 
<laughs> yeah. uh, just politically or conservative theologically. And I've just noticed that the 18 to 35 range is that's the, the season where you test the boundaries. You you go into the world, you go on the hero's journey, you rumspringa, as uh, the Amish would call it, the running yeah. away. And it, to me, does seem to be a developmental thing. And I'm not blessing, by the way, I'm not blessing apostasy right. and walking away from Jesus. Yeah. I'm just saying that it does seem that there's this period of time in our lives where we test the boundaries. And, and I, I would be one that would say that's a developmental spiritual experience that we need to not shame and just enter into with people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I like how you put that. There's, I mean, the, the needs are inherently different. Yeah, we're the same, but the needs change. Yeah. 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 In that uh, I was I was just listening to a this this guy talk about I was just listening to a, a psych a psychologist talk about the enigma of the fact that over the course of a lifetime we're the same person, and yet our body um, is completely fully reproduced. Every atom in our body is reproduced, and we have new flesh every seven years. And this enigma that our atoms change, but we remain the same. Mm -hmm. And I think on a spiritual level, right, that's that we're the same person at 60 as we were at three. It, but we have changed so much that we have such fundamentally different needs at those stages in our life. Yeah. Yeah. I had, uh, I, I like that image too, that drawing that analogy with um, anatomy and physiology and um, looking at it like, like it's a, a metaphor for our spiritual development. Yeah, that really does make make a lot of sense. In that time period that you mentioned, roughly 18 to 25 or 30, um, as you said, there's a testing of the boundaries um, that often manifests in uh, some degree of doubt of what has been told, what has been given to you. When can that be good? When can that doubt actually be good or beneficial? Yeah. Well, let me, let me give you a, a fairly um, uh, trigger warning, I guess. Uh, I'm going to give a pretty vulnerable story about our foster daughter who needs to go unnamed, but this is, I think, a very apt, um, a, a very apt uh, image. Yeah. Um, so our, our foster daughter was raised uh, in an environment uh, where her father was very, very, very coercive and abusive. And uh, our foster daughter's mother had passed away. And when she passed away of cancer at a very, I mean, she had cancer for like a month. I mean, it was a very quick cancer diagnosis. When her mom died, her dad uh, began to tell her that her mom's aunt and uncle had actually killed her mom. And essentially began uh, implanting in her the lie that her family had killed her mom. And so um, she came into our home with a certain set of ideas about who her extended family were. Mm -hmm. And we were told very early on that she would need people who could essentially begin to deprogram her. And that was our task, was to help her see the truth and undo the lies that her father had implanted in her about 
her mother's death. And so two months ago, when she transitioned into the aunt and uncle's home, uh, 10 months earlier, she had believed that those were the people that killed her mom. And now she is in that home, living a fruitful, generative, life-giving home with yeah. people that love Jesus and are able to take care of her. Yeah. I think all of us are raised with a bunch of ideas that we're given. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those ideas are good, and some of them are not true. We are all given a bunch of ideas through our life. We are raised with stuff. And a lot of that stuff is really good. But every single person who has ever been brought into this world, and even raised by the best Christian parents, is ultimately going to be given some things that simply are not true. Because our parents are sinners and our parents are imperfect, and it is impossible for our parents to perfectly give us the faith in a perfect way. And as a result of that, part of growing up is the reckoning of receiving the good that our parents gave to us and naming and undoing the lies and the things that were not true. And that, that is a critical, that, there's a fundamental difference between eating the meat and spitting out the bones, taking the good and leaving the bad. And there's a fundamental difference between that and just chucking your parents and right. saying, I'm done with my parents. Deconstruction, in, in the sense that we're talking about here, the goal is not to chuck our faith in Jesus. The goal is to chuck anything that we've been given that does not represent Jesus from the Bible yeah. and to undo the lies. And that journey 18 to 35, where you're beginning to wake up to the good that you were given and the lies that you were given is a very scary journey. Yeah. But man, is it an important journey. It is such a critical stage in our faith because we are simultaneously honoring our parents and what they gave to us and um, naming our generational sin. <laughs> yeah. And if you think those two things are easy to do at the same time, woo, woo, challenge. Yeah. And my son, poor Elliot, man, we're just saving up for his, his years when he needs counseling, because at the end of the day, uh, I'm just doing to my son what I know my parents did to me. I'm giving him some good and man alive, he's got some stuff he's going to have to undo at some point. Yeah. That, um, that journey, well, I was able to, to witness that, uh, not firsthand, thankfully, but when I first started seminary back in 2010, there were there were a, a handful of folks who had come from the same school, and uh, that school had, uh, based on what I had heard, wronged a beloved professor. Mm. And that professor was, I think, in large part responsible for helping some of those individuals maybe see that God was perhaps bigger than the sectarian. A vision hmm. that they had uh, been given yeah. and instead of being able to appreciate things that they had been given like you know a, a um a high view of scripture and um you know, like a historically orthodox understanding of the um you know of jesus's atoning death and bodily resurrection and things along those lines they, after this professor was wronged, it it was not two years where uh, 
two that I'm thinking of in particular had not just left that particular tradition, but were out of faith in Jesus entirely. Mm. And I think that process took them maybe a total of <clears throat> three or four years. And it was really sad watching that. And I, I didn't know these guys very well, but um, some of their friends handled it much better. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, yeah I've seen it. And in that yeah, case, I'm in that case, the doubt was bad. But you've you've given us some indication that there are times when doubt is good and useful. It, it is all about yeah, this. We have to I, I would encourage any listener here to be very cautious to assume everything you hear about doubt and deconstruction on Twitter is accurate or on on TikTok, um, because you would you would assume if you are just reading kind of conservative evangelical literature, you would assume deconstruction is inherently bad. Right. But if you were to read progressives, you would assume it's required um, in order to be a follower of Jesus. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I think we really get confused because the problem is not deconstruction. The problem is what are we deconstructing? Mm -hmm. Because, it, it, listen, the Bible has a word. <laughs> to change your beliefs about something, to change your, your knowledge, to change your idea— the Bible has a word for that. It's the Greek word metanoia, to change your mind. It's our word for repentance. Mm -hmm. To repent is to change your mind. It's to think differently. Yeah. And we are called to repent. And part of following Jesus is repenting of lies, mm -hmm. deconstructing false truth, false ideas. Yep. It is not the issue of deconstruction. Listen, when Jesus says, you have heard it said to the religious leaders, but I say to you, he's deconstructing. Yeah. That's what that is. Yep. He is undoing false ideas about the Bible. But here's the, the deal. Jesus never deconstructs the Bible. Jesus deconstructs bad interpretations of the Bible. Yeah. And that's the problem. We're not, I'm not saying deconstructing Christianity is good. I'm saying deconstructing false Christianity uh, is what we should be doing. Yep. False ideas. The Bible is, we need the Bible so desperately. I mean, it is without the Bible, we have, we, we're going on nothing, folks. I mean, we, <laughs> if yep. we don't have the words of the people that knew Jesus, we don't have, I mean, we have to have those voices. Mm -hmm. And uh, I am not saying that we deconstruct the Bible, but I am saying we should take very seriously deconstructing any idea we have that does not reflect the bible yeah 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 there are false notions about who jesus was what he did what he said That's that exactly absolutely right. need to be absolutely. broken down absolutely yeah. i could tell you kevin i i just earlier today was telling this story a young woman who came into my office our appointments i'm sitting in my office here i have this awesome couch over here students love my office because i have the most comfortable office hours i was gonna say it looks cozy it's cozy, man. Cozy. And I actually get my, my, the guy across the hall has a little fridge and we got kombucha in there and coffee. People love coming in. <laughs> I had a young woman who came into my office uh, two years ago and she uh, began to tell me her story of the kind of theological environment she'd been raised in. And mm -hmm. she's describing to me major abuse that had been done to her physical sexual abuse and, and I said, how did that happen? And she starts talking about the theology in this church and how the theology that was essentially taught was 
that you, the way you, as a woman, the way you submit to Jesus is you submit to whatever man God's put over you. And if they, if they, if they do those things to you, you're patient and you're calm, but you just submit to it. And I got to tell you, Kevin, <laughs> yeah. I got to tell you, there are moments when my job as a Christian is to deconstruct other people's ideas yep. and to help them see what they have been given is not the Jesus of the New Testament. And that young woman, if she was sitting right here, she would be saying like, the, girl, the woman that sat in my office two years ago is a different woman today because she now sees for the first time what, what Jesus actually thinks about her and that Jesus would never be okay with her theologically being manipulated into abuse. And to me, as an educator and as a Christian, I have a responsibility to look lies in the face and confront it with the truth of Jesus. Yeah. And that is deconstructing. <laughs> yeah. It can also be, and I need to be very clear, there are forms of deconstruction, Kevin, that are very unhealthy. And there are, it is true. I have had students in my office who are deconstructing their faith, not because they love Jesus, but because at the end of the day, they really want to sleep with who they want to sleep with and smoke what they want to smoke. Yeah. And the difference is I've got to have the discerning ability to tell the difference between why somebody's doing what they're doing and why they're not. That's hard work. Hard work. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about deconstruction, which as, uh, as folks read through your book, we see that that's actually the second stage of these three stages that, sh that you present. What are those stages and uh, are, are there things that generally trigger movement from one stage to the next? Oh, man. Well, okay. Uh, okay. Two, the, those are two huge questions. I can tackle one of those. The okay. second one of what gets us to move from one stage to another, yeah. literally whole chapters in the book about that. So that needs, mm -hmm. you got to read that. And I would, I, I, I think, I'm, go, go read me. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, this isn't particularly unique to me, but there, but I, 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 maybe it's unique in the sense that I put language to it in a unique way. <clears throat> and that is that in the book, I outlined what I call the theological journey. And the theological journey is the idea that all of us, none of us come prepackaged with all, all the good stuff in our brains uh, that we, in, in, the, in a very James K.A. Smith sense, uh, we are habituated and discipled and even disciplined into good and right belief. Mm -hmm. That belief doesn't just happen. It takes, belief takes effort and it takes intentionality. That we are liturgical beings that need our faith to be given a structure. And so I talk about the theological journey as the three stages we often go through in our journey of how we understand and know Jesus on a, on a, on a theological uh, level. And those three uh, stages are number one, uh, what I would call the construction stage. And the construction stage are those years in our life when we begin to initially build what we know about God. Mm -hmm. um, when I first got uh, became a Christian and was baptized at 16, uh, it was me sitting in a Bible study with Robin Brush as he taught me the Bible for the very first time. And I didn't know anything about the Trinity. I didn't know what Christians thought about the Bible. I didn't know nothing. And I had to take on faith uh, what this guy gave me. And I did. And thank God I did because the guy knew the Bible really well and he passed on good stuff to me. Yeah. Um, and so construction are those years that we build our initial um, 
uh, belief structures, construction. Mm -hmm. Deconstruction is a stage in our journey where we begin to question those beliefs. And we begin to think through, maybe not reject them, but think critically yeah. about those because we received our construction beliefs uncritically. It's an uncritical reception. Like my son didn't learn how to say cookie because he did a word study on the internet. He learned how to say cookie because he heard me say the word cookie and he knew that that corresponded to reality. Yeah, so yeah. we uncritically receive our first theological beliefs. And usually mm -hmm. there comes a point 18 to 35, where we begin to think through those beliefs yeah. and critically reflect on them. Because um, generally by that time, you've, I mean, th there really is no substitute for experience. And life experience can often lead someone to say, man, you know, is this, that's a is great this really worth my time and effort and energy? Yeah, that's, a great, yeah. that's a great way to put that. Here's a great example. When I, um, so I, let me preface, I'm at, on I'll talk about sexuality for a second. Um, I'm very conservative when it comes to sexuality. When I say conservative, I mean, I'm, I come from the historic Christian tradition. I would yeah. hold the historic Christian ethic yeah. on sexuality um, very strongly. And, and, and I, I make no bones about that or whatnot. But, but when you're raised, okay, when you're raised in an environment that teaches that and you are taught any kind of idea that gay and lesbian and trans people are evil humans that eat kittens for breakfast and are just horrible people. Yeah. You are taught that. Yeah. And then you go into the world and you make your first gay friend and they're, they're incredibly kind and generous and loving. Yeah. What, what you're describing, your experience is all of a sudden now discongruent. It's incongruent with, with the attitude you were put in, 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 as a, as a child. Yeah. And so actually at the end of the day, one of the greatest ways to help people not deconstruct or need to deconstruct is don't give them stuff that they need to deconstruct. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. No, the, like the best thing we can do. And I mean this, the best thing we can do is give kids the Bible and nothing else. Like don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Give them the Bible. Yeah. And let the mystery of the Bible be in place. There's parts of the Bible that are super clear. There's parts that I lose sleep over and I don't get. Mm -hmm. but don't iron out the mysteries and don't make more mysterious the stuff that's plain and clear. We need to give the Bible to kids as best as we can, because when we don't and we teach them things that the Bible doesn't say, there's going to come a point down the road when their experience is going to go, well, the Bible doesn't say that or something. And the experience causes us to reject the Bible. When in reality, what we should be rejecting is the bad version, the bad teachings of the Bible we were given rather than the Bible itself. Yeah. It's that C.S. Lewis idea, the abuse of something never nullifies its original use. And his mm -hmm. idea is just because the Bible's abused doesn't mean that you reject the Bible, you reject the misuse of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. So that deconstruction stage is a very sacred stage because you're doing what my grandma taught me to do. You're learning to eat the meat and spit out the bones. What are you taking with you? And what are you saying? To, oh, that's not what great. Another example. When I first became a Christian at 16, the same church that taught me how to follow Jesus, they gave me my first Bible. They taught me about the Trinity. They told me how to share my faith. They gave me core basics of the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out later on, which I learned later on, they also gave me like a really low view of women. Hmm. And ultimately down the road, I became, it became very clear that I was given some ideas about women as basically footnotes in the kingdom that is not reflected in the Bible. Right. 
And so now I'm in this tension. Like I want to receive all the good I was given, but there's some stuff that needs to be rethought. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the deconstruction stage. We can the, see, like we can even point to uh, examples of the deconstruction stage in scripture. I mean, oh my goodness, the Damascus Road experience is a, is an extraordinarily and uniquely intense moment of deconstruction for Saul. Yes. Who then goes through this process? Uh, you know, you, you can point to uh, any number of folks who so, uh, who, who experienced built, like that. He had built his life on an entire way of thinking, and has an experience of Jesus, and has to rethink the whole thing. And to, it's so powerful that you just brought that story up. There's two parts of that story that really strike me. Number one, Paul doesn't eat for like three days, <laughs> and I I think when when that happens, and I think the reason is it hit him so hard. It completely disoriented him. I think he literally forgot to eat. I mean, I think he was like, I don't know what to do. And then the second thing that strikes me is that when he experiences Jesus, Jesus blinds him. Yeah. And he needs somebody to go with him to Damascus. It's striking that the same Jesus who can heal blindness is the same one that can provide it. The deconstruction experience is a very disorienting experience. Yeah. You feel like you're blind. You feel like you don't know up from down. You stop eating. And what you need in those moments in time is you need somebody who can walk with you because often you can't, who you go to in your deconstruction experience will be who you are becoming. That is why when you go through the deconstruction experience, it is pivotal that you do not do it alone. You rely on people who love Jesus, who have gone ahead of you, who can hold your hand. Would you would you repeat that again? Because I I I think it bears repeating. Who you go to who during you, your deconstruction experience? That's precise. Who you surround yourself with when you don't know up from down is eventually who you're going to become. Yeah. I mean, yeah. here's what happens. That and this happened in COVID. It's happening right now, and I it, it it breaks my heart. It's the reality of our moment in time, our cultural moment, but young people who are going through the deconstruction experience and rather than bearing those questions to the church and to the people around them, the way that God created it to be, we have essentially replaced the church with podcasts and I'm not Kevin belittling the importance of the work that you're doing. I'm on a podcast because I believe in this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. But when we, when we trade the church for this, something is lost. Yeah. We, yeah. we need in, in, in those moments, we need, when we are blind, we need someone in the room whose hand we can hold. And it, I, I mean, again, I'll say it feels like you're, you're blind. It feels like you don't know up from down who you hold on to in those moments. I remember, gosh, Kevin, this is bringing back so many memories for me. When I was 19 years old, and for the very first time as a new Christian, I found something in the Bible that really I didn't like. And I remember at that time, I did not know up from down. This was before the internet. I didn't know what to do. And I remember reading N.T. Wright's book, The Last Word, which is his book on how the Bible's, what we believe about the Bible. And honestly, that book was me holding onto the hand of somebody. Yeah. And it got me through. And I, a couple of years ago, I got to introduce N.T. Wright at a conference and publicly thank him for writing a book that was my, it was my handholder when I was blind. Yeah. 
Praise God. I wish I didn't have to go to a book. I wish I had had somebody to hold on to. I mean, but it's, yeah, that's all I said. Yeah. I will. And then the third, sorry, reconstruction, yeah. coming back to Jesus. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Yeah. For those interested, and again, let me encourage for those of you listening to uh, check out AJ Sabota's After Doubt, your chapter on, uh, on, staying in church or sticking it out with the church through this process of deconstruction is is so powerful and um you know i i'll speak in in i'll speak in generalities as to uh not um not name uh the innocent and guilty parties involved but uh, at a time at a time in my ministry uh, some time ago a um a friend who who desperately needed the church decided that they would withdraw from the church in order to in order to um, to go it alone or in, in order to look for the answers to give them well I guess they thought they needed space or something to give them the answers that they thought they needed and ultimately decided to leave leave our fellowship and I, I i use the term fellowship not as a as a synonym for congregation although that did happen but they decided to to step away from the friendships that they had made during that time and it was just heartbroken because because all i wanted was just a phone call or a text message you know just an answer say hey how's it going and then to get some kind of response back because that would have been sufficient to kind of keep things going and it just yeah. it just didn't happen and it hurts you know but as as you've hey, expressed hey, Kevin, before can i can i just i don't think i've ever talked about this on a podcast or anything i've done a thousands of these these conversations hundreds of these conversations i shouldn't say thousands there there's an element to this story that really doesn't get often brought up and it's the element of the journey as a Christian, when you watch your friends deconstruct their faith and the loneliness and the sadness and the pain that that brings up in you, watching friends go through that and feeling rejection, feeling loss. And that is a real experience. And I, I don't know, I, I just, I guess I want to say, I really appreciate you naming the other side to this conversation. Sure. Because part of this is, yeah, we're listening to the stories of people that are deconstructing. But there's another side of this. What about the parents who are watching their kids walk away? What about the pastors who are watching droves of people leave? What about the people in the congregations that are seeing their friends leave? Da, da, da. That is a very lonely experience. And I, I can't help but wonder if in this moment in time that Jesus is inviting us to share in his loneliness and to share in the divine loneliness of the God on the cross who, who knows he's a man of sorrows and he knows the sorrow of loneliness. And I don't know, I, part of me wonders if Jesus is teaching you and teaching me to enter into the presence of God when no one else is in the room. And that, it's a sacred experience. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a sacred experience. I had not thought before about connecting it with Jesus's isolation there, especially in his last few hours but that rings true with one of the overarching messages of probably my favorite uh of paul's letters uh, philippians where the theme is essentially 
you know, sharing in Jesus's sufferings, you know, yeah. participating in his pain. Yes. Um, and then that isolation, experiencing some of that. Yeah, I, I hadn't even thought about that before. But in the hope of glory, sense. right? <laughs> suffering so that we experience his glory. Um, yeah, that's right. You don't, you don't get one without the other. You don't get the, yeah, yeah. 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 Thanks for naming that. Kevin. Yeah. Um, in your experience, and, and you've you've mentioned these groups before in or earlier in the talk, and you mentioned these groups in the in your book. In your experience, do conservative, I'll put air quotes around that, painfully relative term, um, but still somehow manages to communicate. Mm-hmm. Do conservative and progressive Christians experience doubt and deconstruction in similar or, or different ways and is there a is there one topic or that affects one more than the other and vice versa or uh, can we dig into this just for a little bit well the the the, the moment that we find ourselves in um uh, i quoted it in the book but there's a great book by uh a scholar uh, a book called the big the, the the big sort which is that blue states are getting blurred red states are getting redder and essentially what's happened uh, in American politics geographically is happening in the church. And that is that basically what's happening is Christians are going to their like-minded political environments to worship Jesus uh, mm-hmm. and worship God on their own terms. So Democrats are now mainliners, generally speaking, and evangelicals are largely the Republicans. That's not across, the, that's not sure. one for yeah. one. I, I'm well aware of that, you know, African-American communities tend to be more conservative socially it can be more uh, conservative theologically but politically uh more progressive so on and so forth but but essentially what has happened and is happening is a big short in churches and like-minded people are hanging out with like-minded people and the result is we don't hang out with people that are different than ourselves and so in general i would say conservatives are better at giving answers and progressives are better at asking questions and uh in general in general <laughs> And you now have communities where it is safe to get answers, but not safe to ask questions. And progressive communities where it's safe to answer, ask questions, but it's not safe to find the old answers. So I laugh, I chuckle because I, I, I feel like that coheres with my experience and my friends' experiences who, who fall in those different groups, yeah. you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what does that mean for us? Well, it means that the people that are asking questions are not hanging out with people that might have some answer for them. And the people that have the answers are not hanging out with people that have questions that they need to hear. And so rather than being a church where we weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice, all the churches, there's, there's churches for rejoicers and there's church for weepers. Um, so we're not hanging out together anymore. And the result is, um, in many cases, um, young people are raised in, in conservative Christian homes until all of a sudden something happens in life and the answers don't work anymore and they start going to a mainline church because there's no space in the conservative church to ask big questions. Um, and simultaneously, um, progressive churches uh, largely uh, uh, gather uh, people that are asking important cultural questions, but often reject the ancient answers of the church. And mm-hmm. it's, it's become 
the, I, I heard one guy call it the fiefdom of the church. We basically got these fiefdoms now and it breaks God's heart. It breaks my heart. And, you know, think, think politics as an American, I have to pick between two parties um, that care for two different groups of people. If I'm a conservative, then I'm allowed to fight for the unborn. And if I'm a Democrat, then I'm fighting for children in cages at the border with Mexico. And I now live in a world where I have to pick which kind of children I want to care for because that's what the political system allows. And I think Jesus wants us to break that system and stop being partisan and be political. And to be political is to say Jesus is Lord and I refuse to live in the partisan hackery that has become our system. Um, because Jesus does not pick between the unborn and the children in a cage at the border. He is, in, he is absolutely in love with both. And I must, by faithful responsibility to Jesus, love both too. This is my way of giving a very long answer to the fact that basically, uh, when you don't have a church where there is actual diversity of thought, uh, essentially, we all become more and more hyper versions of ourselves. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so those with certitude become more certain and those with questions become more full of questions. Yeah. No wonder we don't know how to listen to each other. You've mentioned earlier that age group, 18 to 20, 30 something. And you know, for those of us who have uh, you know, a, a foot in the academic world, but also a foot in congregational ministry, um, as, as you had for a long time, um, it's a, a buzzword is uh, intergenerational. We want our ministries to we want our church to be a place for all generations. Well, if this age group of 18 to 20 or 30 something is the group that tends to be asking more of these questions, then the 40, 50, 60 plus crowd needs those folks. Yes. In. Yes. And if the, you know, 50, 60 plus crowd are the ones who tend to get more conservative, then you know they might have some answers. Yep. And so you know the groups need each other. Yep. Paul's words: say. "You you have brothers and sisters in the faith, but no mothers and fathers." Um, it's it's we have become a in the words of Robert Bly, the church has become a sibling society. We spend time with people that are our age. Our youth groups are all the same age. Our old churches are all old. Our youth groups are all the youth. Uh, we're a sibling society. We don't we don't have the people with the wrinkles ahead of us, and the people with the wrinkles don't have the young people with them. And it it is creating tragically. It's creating environments where um, the people with the answers are not spending time with the people with the questions, and the people with the questions are not spending time with the people uh, that, that that think they know everything. It's it's tragic, brother. It's tragic. As we wrap up, uh, last question. What can, and, and if you want to give bullet points, that's fine. What can the church do to help? What can the church offer to someone in doubt? And what can the doubter do to yeah. maybe help themselves uh, maintain or, or um, you know, in a healthy way, work through these kinds of questions they have? Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, 
Um, I, I am I am struck and I have always been struck, and this is a big part of the book, and so I don't want to I want to steal thunder from those that are have not read it, but um I'm struck at the story of Job in the Bible. Um Job loses everything. Uh, he gets pretty mad about it, and he writes a speech that he wants to give to God, and he finally has the chance to come before God. And when he does get before God, he doesn't get his speech out. In fact, God has a speech for him. And the whole story of Job 38 is God asking Job a bunch of questions. Were you there when I created the foundations? Were you there when I, you know, created the Leviathan? Were you there when da 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 da? Uh, the story of Job is not an explanation for suffering. It does not deal with theodicy. If it does deal with theodicy, it does not have the answers that we're looking for. It is not an adequate explanation of suffering. And that is because that's not the point of the book of Job. The point of the book of Job is not that God gives people answers. The point of the book of Job is that God gives people his presence. Mm -hmm. And we tend towards in the Western church, when people are going through struggles, usually they're looking for our presence and we end up giving them answers. I see that. Yeah. So what we do is we, some our kids come to us and they've got all these questions and we say, Oh, you got to watch this YouTube video. Oh, here's a Preston Spring. Watch this, watch this Bible project video. Mm -hmm. They're all good friends of mine, by the way. Yeah. They're yeah. great stuff. Um, but we give an answer when in reality, what our kid is looking for is they're not really looking for an answer. They're looking for somebody to be with them in the question. And I would, I would suggest we have all, we got, the Bible's got the answers. We're there. It's got a lot of good questions too. But at the end of the day, the person who's asking questions, it's not more often than not, it's not really an itch of the mind. More often than not, it's an itch of the heart. And what someone is looking for is they're looking for somebody to give them themselves in the midst of their struggle and to be with them. The ministry, the ministry, Pope Francis calls it the ministry of the ear. Um, the powerful work of sitting and listening and being with someone in the midst of what they're walking through. When I was doing my MDiv several years ago, and we would do, um, yeah, the practicum more. I would go with uh, one of the guys from the church I was working with, and we would do home visits to shut-ins and and folks. Yeah. I was always afraid. I was always terrified that somebody was going to ask me a question. Well, why is this happening to me? And not a single one of them asked that question. It was always about being there with them in the name of Jesus, because this was a beloved brother or sister. Wow. Yeah, we've got one minute left. Any last takeaways before we go? Oh, Kevin, you're a great interviewer. Uh, it makes a big difference to to actually talk to somebody who's read my book. And unfortunately, <laughs> I've, had, I've had a good hundred stories where I can tell the publisher just sent the questions out. But the truth is, this was a real conversation, and that makes a big difference. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it, Doctor Svoboda. It's been a pleasure, sir. Very. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, I'll put a, put a link in the description below for folks to check out After Doubt. Uh, the class that I taught on a Wednesday night a couple of months ago was entitled, Is There Life After Doubt? And uh, it, you know, I appreciated the, the, the little little joke. I don't know that everybody caught it, but it looks like you did. So thank you. There is life. Amen. <laughs> Amen. All right. Dr. Zaboda, take care, sir. Thank you. Kevin, what a gift. Thank you for your uh, wholehearted um, affirmation of my work, but more than that, uh, your wholehearted love of Jesus and the work that you're doing. Yes, sir. Take care. All right. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.